morning. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel terrible for all those people that are traveling today on vacation. Not at all, not at all. Would I mind a blessing, he asks. Father, we are so thankful that you have blessed many here, but especially Greg, with a desire to share your word, to study it, to take it apart, to see what you would have us know. And so, Father, I ask your blessings to be upon Greg this moment, to have a recollection of what he has prepared. May he be blessed and may we be blessed in its hearing. Thank you, Father, so much. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. 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 Thank you, brother. So, this is, this is what my experience of teaching Hebrews has been like. And there are, other, there are other parts of Scripture that are this way, but, man, especially this time around. Have you guys ever, like, like loved a song and then you want to show, you want to play it for someone else. You're like, listen, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. Listen to this. And then about halfway through the song, you just can tell they're not vibing. And you're like, no, but it's a really good song. Why? Do you, are you here? You want me to, okay, you missed it. Here's the lyrics. It goes like this. And then you, and then you tell them what it says. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like that sometimes teaching different parts of the Bible, and Hebrews is one of those where it, you know it, it's it's tough to like get your head around it, and sometimes I just feel like like I'm like I have I have this this deep love for Scripture, and I get to like spend hours combing through it and wrestling with it and trying to figure out what it's what it's saying to us here and now trying to be open to what God is speaking trying to put it together and then and then you just go like I don't think they're hearing what I'm hearing uh, I don't think they're really feeling this song the way that I'm feeling this song so I'm hoping that if that's been sort of your experience, that you've like been, okay, we did Hebrews, what's next? Um, that maybe today, at least a big picture, an overview of what we have heard will touch you. That's really what I want. I, I really want the word of encouragement that the Hebrews author intends to speak to us, to land. In the midst of all of the sort of theological imaginings of Jesus, our high priest, there is this through line in Hebrews. And it's the author's desire that our hearts be deeply encouraged in faithfulness to God. So, let me begin with 
a review in which for each section that we've covered, we've, this, is, this is week 13 in Hebrews, and so we've got 12 weeks that we've covered, and I, I just want to give a passage that sort of gets at the gist of each of those weeks to kind of help us recollect what did we, what did we hear, what did we learn as we went along. Um, and I'm ho- the reason that I'm hoping that this works to sort of give us a different angle, maybe a more uh, enriching angle on Hebrews, is because I think part of the problem is, you know, this was meant to be read all at once. And the way that we engage Scripture primarily in the church today is always in smaller chunks. It's in sermons on passages, it's in, you know weekly challenges to read two chapters a week or something. It's always it's it's very seldom like you should read the book of Hebrews today, right? And that's like, oh that's a lot. I don't know if I can process that much Hebrews at a time. Um, but but that's actually how it was written to be delivered as a single sermon. I think John King mentioned that before. And really the way we've been digesting it, it reminds me of the okay. Let's, let's flip it. Who here has no experience whatsoever with dial-up internet? Dial-up internet. If you've never heard of it, never used it, you two boys right there, very little, right? Once upon a time, dear children, you would connect your computer to your phone jack, and then it would make an astonishingly weird series of noises, and it would connect to the World Wide Web. And <laughs> both, both places in the World Wide Web, yeah. And then when you would click on a picture on the World Wide Web, it would load from top to bottom in 10 pixel segments. And so now you can see the top of their head. Oh, there's the eyes. Oh, it's going to be a whole face, right? And that, that, that's how we used to experience images on the internet, right? And I feel like that's kind of how we've been processing Hebrews. We keep getting like 10 more pixels, 10 more pixels. And I'd really like this to step back and see the whole image of Christ, our high priest, at once. Full resolution, 4K, here we go. You'll have to forgive me. I'm going to do quite a bit of just reading the Bible to you this morning. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Therefore, let us go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance Because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily, that clings so closely. Got that old script running. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's where we've been. And even in review, even in just 12 short clips of the text, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, to process uh, what exactly this means to us. And we come to the end of Hebrews. We're in 13.7 to the end this morning. And something of the author's personality pokes through that I really enjoy. Um, Because I I think a lot of commentators, of course, I have this, maybe it's just my personality. I'm just seeing something there that's not there. But a lot of times when I read scripture uh, that commentators take with utmost seriousness, I actually hear like a little snark, a little sarcasm, a little sense of humor. And we come, <laughs> we come to the end of Hebrews, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. <laughs> now, if you just take it seriously, it's like, yeah, it could definitely be longer. I mean, he, he could have he said more. 
But I think he's actually winking at them. I mean, he knows that he's just given them a brain full, a heart full to digest. And I appreciate this so much because I often feel that I have to say, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written a brief sermon for you. I just need you to stay with me for a minute, okay? Uh, Some of us are better at brevity than others, but some of us who are not so good at it have a sense of humor about it. So let me run through and just do something similar here with the word of encouragement. It's actually a bunch of words of encouragement that in our reading of, of Hebrews, you might have missed or you might have heard, but it's sort of faded in your memory. And when you hear it all together, for me, it's so gripping. It's so beautiful to hear the longing of this author's heart for his church family. And by all accounts, this is his church family. That's why he says at the very end of the letter, that he, he says, pray for me that I might be released so that I can return to you. So in some way, he's, he's, he's found himself in captivity, and he's longing to get back to his church family. And so he's written them this sermon to encourage them. And here's the longing that he has for them. Therefore, we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold firm to the confidence and the pride that belong to hope. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Therefore, let us Go on toward perfection, leaving behind the basic teaching about Christ and not laying again the foundation. And we want each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of the hope to the very end, so that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patient, who through faith and patience inherit the promises." In the same way, when God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath. God doesn't break his promises, Mike. He guaranteed it by an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God would prove false, we who have taken refuge might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. Now, the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent 
that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? So, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, and let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. Lastly, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. Whew. That's what this author wants us to get. Therefore, 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 see Jesus, the high priest who intercedes on, a, on our behalf, whose very flesh was torn to create a way for us into the presence of God, whose very blood makes us holy, whose very example blazes a path for us to follow. Follow him, therefore, follow him, see him, behold him, worship him, and give thanks, and follow. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants for us. Which brings us then to chapter 13, verse 7. Let me read it before going on to the next slide. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. For it is well for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by regulations about food, which have not benefited those who observe them. 
We have an altar from which those who officiate in the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. For Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such practices are pleasing to God. Such sacrifices, excuse me, are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls and will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with sighing, for that would be harmful to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you very soon. Now, may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been set free, and if he comes in time, he will be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. I feel like this is the big question at the end. Where is Hebrews leading us? Us. We can state this a couple of different ways. What does the sojourn to a city that has foundations, where does it lead? Where does that lead us? Where is Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, leading us? I mean, there's so many journey images in this book. Jesus is trailblazing for us. Our, the ancestors of faith are wandering and sojourning toward a city, toward a future, toward a hope. We ourselves are journeying in order to enter the land of rest, the promise. Where is Jesus leading us? And Hebrews, astonishingly, presents this answer. <laughs> this, this wild twist. 
Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us go then to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. You want to go to the lasting city? Then get outside the gate and suffer with Jesus. That's the way. That's the path. The path that Jesus blazed for us results in this preacher, this writer of Hebrews saying, let's go then and suffer with him. What a rallying cry, right church? How exciting to hear. Isn't that what you want to hear in your sermon? All right, everybody, here we go. Let's go endure the same abuse that Jesus endured. Let's go. That is where it leads for this author. All of the hope and the exhortation, the longing to see them cling to their faith and trust God, trust what they can't see with their own eyes find comfort in the story of our ancestors in the faith, to see Jesus interceding on our behalf in the midst of whatever is happening, understanding us, understanding our pain. All of that is for this, therefore, let's go to him outside the gate and endure the abuse that he suffered. That's our calling. Now, if that sounds crazy to you, if that sounds like an awfully strange exhortation, if that sounds somewhat less than encouraging, I want you to remember that Jesus is the one who says, if anyone would become my disciple, let that person take up their cross Die to themselves and follow me. This writer is saying nothing new. He's simply faithfully preaching the gospel that Jesus himself preached. You want to come to the Father? You come through me, and I go to the cross. Who wants to come? Jesus is our great mediator. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And he calls us to follow him to the cross. And the beautiful thing that the Hebrews author points out, for these people whose imagination is saturated with the importance of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and the concentric rings of holiness, outside of which there is no holiness. For these people, the author of Hebrews recognizes that the call to discipleship is the call outside the camp. Jesus dies outside the camp. God is present with us and saving us and purifying us, making us holy in the very place that the Bible designates as unholy, impure, desolate, far from God. That's where God in Christ goes. That's where we find Jesus. And that's where he wants us to go. You want to find your high priest. You don't go into the sanctuary. 
You don't go into the religious center, the establishment, the place where everybody knows to look, the sanctuary. You don't go into the church building to find God. You go outside the sanctuary to find God at work, saving people outside the gate. That's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus calls us. That's what it means to endure what he endured. To suffer for the sake of those who are on the margins, who are outcast. Die to yourself for something that is not you. Not for your own benefit. Not so you get the pass key to the kingdom. Not so that God will finally accept you. But because by God accepting you, you have been drawn into the life of Christ. And the life of Christ is lived and it dies and is resurrected outside the city, outside the gate, outside the places of acceptance and power and wealth and privilege and comfort. Because that's where God's work unfolds for us. That's where he calls us, outside the gate. No doubt we need a whole lot of encouragement, hours and hours of it, if we're going to say yes to that. We also need leaders. Did you notice when we read the passage, leaders were mentioned three times? actually kind of creates the structure of this whole section. It begins with, remember your leaders. And it goes on to obey your leaders and submit to them. And then it ends with, greet all your leaders and all the saints. It's trying to remind them to look to those who are able to lead the way in following Jesus. We need people to disciple us. We need to consider their way of life with all of its imperfections. We need to consider how it is that they show us what it means here and now in this place to leave the city through the gate and go to the cross. Because when we think about it in our own lives, it feels so hard to understand what we're supposed to do exactly. How do I do this, Greg? How do I... Leave the city. How do I go outside the gate to Jesus? How do I die to myself? It's all metaphor, man. What do I do in my relationship to my significant other, to my children, to my co-workers, to my boss, to my neighbors, to the random people I bump into, to the people that flip me off while I'm driving? What, what do I do? How, what does that mean? We need very concrete guidance and that does not come in the form of sermon bullet points that comes in the shape of lives lived in faithfulness to God for many years and you look to them those people who show you the way and you ask yourself how do I imitate them as they imitate Christ because they're right here too they're right here in my same place in my same time that's what I do. That's my next step. I look to Mike. I look to Ben. I look to Pat. 
look to Julie, I look to each of you insofar as you lead me toward Jesus. I tend to your way of life and I imitate your faith. Now for the really tough part, I'm going to use the S word, submission. Submission. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Why should I submit myself to them? I've seen their mistakes. I, I perceive their blind spots, their foibles. I don't know if I want to entrust myself to them. They're not Jesus. I'll follow Jesus, not men. No, the Hebrew writer says. Submit yourself to the people who lead you to Jesus. They don't have to be Jesus to help you get there. Recognize their work. He says it like this, For they are keeping watch over your souls and will give an account. How do you know who your leaders are? How do you know who to submit to? Who is taking care of your soul? Who's doing the actual work of making sure that you're taking the next step on the path that Jesus has blazed? That's who you submit to. That's who your leaders are. It's not about who's got a title or who's got a position or a certain amount of charisma or a certain set of gifts. Now, leadership is a gift, but we're not going to go down that bunny trail. What I'm saying is, you submit yourself to those people. This is the most general word for leadership in the New Testament. It's not specific. It's the person that's leading you somewhere. You submit yourself to the person who's watching over your soul. If you don't know who that is, you better start looking quick because you need somebody looking over your soul. And you do that in such a way that they don't go, <sighs> you remember Jesus sighing deeply? How much longer, O oh Lord, must I put up with these morons? It's something like, it's a paraphrase, but. Right? I mean, I'm sure none of you have ever made someone looking after your soul sigh before, but I'm just saying, let's try to avoid that. Let's, let's submit ourselves to those who watch over us in such a way that they feel joy in the work that God has called them to. And then lastly, and maybe trivially, but I think it's interesting that the writer doesn't simply say, greet all the saints. Right? Because he could. Leaders are among the saints. That covers it all. Why, why the extra? Greet all the leaders and all the saints. Why mark the distinction? Aren't they just... Believers, too, are they special? Well, they're worthy of special recognition. 
that makes you uncomfortable, just grab a hold of your Americanness and deal with it. The people who watch over the souls of others, the people who make that their business, they deserve recognition among God's people. Because they lead us to Jesus. And what more important work on the planet is there than to lead someone to Jesus? Especially since it's so hard to get people to come through the gate and to the cross. (laughs) So, next question. Where exactly is outside the gate for us? Because we're dealing with more figures of speech here, more metaphors, more ideas than concrete realities. So we have to answer for ourselves, well, if I'm going to go out there, where is there? It's kind of interesting that you get a clear sense at this moment that the author is very aware of how intentionally he's blurring the lines between two stories trying to lay one on top of the other. Because the story all through Hebrews has been not the temple, but the tabernacle. Not the Jerusalem city with its gated walls, but the camp of the Israelites on the way out of slavery and into the land of promise, into the land of rest. That's the story that he's telling them. He's inducting them into the story of the Israelite people on the move a people journeying toward the promise. But Jesus is crucified in a different moment of the story, where God's people are no longer a pilgrim people, they're a settled people. And the temple is no longer a mobile tent, but a massive structure. And so he has to switch between The two images, it's like having two different lenses for a moment on your glasses. So he says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. The camp. That's where the laws were first instituted. The camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. So he's rooted to the historical reality of Jesus being outside the gate. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the the abuse he endured. Laying one story over the other so that we get it because our story is the story of the people, the pilgrim people of God on the way out of, out of slavery into promise. And yet Jesus is our Lord and he's the one who calls us outside the Jerusalem gate. Outside the camp is a place for burning the remains of sacrifices. Which is precisely what the author alludes to here. For offering the red heifer, which was a specific sacrifice used for purifying the water that was used for uh, temple rituals. For ritually impure persons, there's a long list of these. Lepers are most prominent. 
there's a whole bunch of other reasons that a person can become impure. impure. They belong outside the camp. And for stoning blasphemers, you actually see this enacted literally throughout Acts where Christians like Paul or Stephen are dragged bodily outside of town in order to stone them. Sort of a, an application of the, the biblical mandate to stone people outside the camp. Outside the gate is the place of Jesus' crucifixion among the condemned. Those who, whether by the treachery or the judgment of the Jewish people or the laws and customs of the Roman people, are to be done away with because of their crimes are to be put on display, humiliated, and disposed of. Outside the gate, outside the camp, that's the place where God's presence is absent. A place of impurity, of death, of absence. Where is God calling us to this morning? For us, where is outside the gate? Is it here? Is it here in the assembly? In the midst of our worship? In our devotion to scripture? Our love for one another? Is that outside the gate? I mean, where do we go to meet Jesus? We say we come here and take communion, the bread and the wine, to meet in the presence of Jesus. We come to the table. I've said that many times. I don't think that that's not true. I just think it's not the whole truth. And the part of the truth that's most difficult for us to hear is what Hebrews is driving at. Gather, encourage one another. To what? Love and good works. Gather. Gather in the presence of Jesus and remember and be strengthened in hope and faith. But then follow Jesus on the path that he has blazed. Follow him to the cross. Follow him outside the city. Follow him to the places where people are damned, condemned, outcast, forgotten, considered impure, Unworthy to be touched, unworthy to be in our presence. That's where the cross is. That's where Jesus calls us. Come, let's go with him and endure what he suffered. Let's go. And lastly, Why? Why go? What for? Three state, four statements consecutively listed in 13, 14, 15, and 16. We go to Jesus outside the gate 
We go to suffer with him in order to, the, to bear the abuse he endured. It's a strange purpose. It's a strange way of thinking. In fact, some religious scholars consider this sort of martyrdom mentality to be pathological, to be masochism. The desire, a religious desire for self-harm. You think of, you know, the, the strange medieval practice of self-flagellation, whipping yourself. If you ever saw the Dan Brown movie, whatever that one was, with the weird albino guy whipping himself, priest. It's just strange. It seems so so strange to do yourself harm, to will to do yourself harm, to want to suffer. That's, that's, that's in, in contrast to everything evolutionary biology would tell us. Everything about us is built to avoid pain and attain pleasure. And this writer has the audacity to say, the reason you should go to Jesus is so that you can suffer with him. I thought I was going to Jesus to get saved, man. I thought I was going to get out of this mess. The path to the promise is through the cross. And the truth is that Paul is saying nothing extraordinary when he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ and to experience his suffering. I want to be one with Jesus because I want to do what God wills and what God wills is going to cost us. It's going to cost us to say yes to the kingdom of God. To go into it body and soul, willing to die for it in small ways and big ways and literal ways and figurative ways. But that's why we go. We go to say yes, just like Jesus did. We go in search of a city that is to come. This is not, this is not, not about us, Right? We often need to emphasize that it's not about us, right? We're blessed to be a blessing, not blessed to have a blessing. But we are blessed to have a blessing. It's just both. It's just both, and we so easily fixate on the self that we have yet to crucify that the blessing for us is the one that we end up sort of obsessing over. This is, this is for me to get saved, to be right with God to find peace, to get my life straight. This is about my heavenly reward. Well, not primarily. Not primarily. But it is in part for you. You are going to Jesus because he's the only one that can lead us to rest. He's the only one that can save us from ourselves. The only one that can resurrect us after ourselves die. 
So yes, we go in search of that blessing. And the promise is for us. The promise is for us. We go out there. This one I really like. To offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. We go out there rather than just stay in here in order to offer a pleasing sacrifice of praise to God. You just can't stay inside the city. You can't stay right up near the temple and offer that kind of praise to God. You've got to go outside the gate. And we go, ultimately, to do good and to share what we have. God knows the people outside the gate need it. That's what we're called to. No light calling. So let me end with the same benediction that the Hebrew writers offers. Let me speak it to you, over you, for you. Now, may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.